The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Hello, and welcome to the Paul Leslie Hour. Thank you for tuning in. Before we get into the interview, I would be honored if you would consider going to thepaulleslie.com and clicking support the show. There are quite a number of things I want to accomplish with the Paul Leslie Hour, and you can help me get more of these interviews out there to the masses. It only takes a moment, and it makes a world of difference. Last but not least, tell someone about the Paul Leslie Hour. Let them know in whatever way you can. And now let's get into the interview. Well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode number 570 of the Paul Leslie Hour. We're welcoming back this very special guest. She was on the show way back on episode number nine. There's a lot going on with Amanda Colleen Williams. She's just released her single. This is her version of the Bruce Springsteen song, I'm on Fire. I actually heard this when it was first broadcast on the radio. It was on WAIL 99.5 FM down in the Florida Keys. I would describe Amanda Williams as a cosmopolitan country entertainer. Well, that's what everybody says anyways. She's a successful business owner, a non-attorney copyright expert, an educator, an award-winning songwriter and music publisher. She's had certified 17 million sales by the RIAA, and I'm so pleased and so honored to talk to you yet again. Well, I'm real happy to be here, and I'm sorry you got a little tickle in your throat today, I can tell. Well, based on your advice, I've been singing a little, (laughs) which uh, thankfully that wasn't recorded, but... uh, (laughs) (laughs) Well, so how you been? Gosh, been great. Just it's been such a crazy year, I know for everyone, and it seems like now that we're all coming out of our imposed hibernations that we're just getting overwhelmed. It's like a good kind of overwhelmed, but so busy, so many things that have been put off during this past year, things that are happening now coming about. So it's it's really kind of neat. It's a good springtime. Moving into summer. So tell us about this experience down in in the Florida Keys. You were down there in the southernmost point of the U.S. Was that the first time you'd been down there? No, I've been there a few times. I love the Keys. My parents uh, took me there for vacation back a long time ago. And you know what? It's kind of cool, and it happens all the time, I think, to people. There's something very mysterious and very compelling about that particular place. I don't know whether it's just so close to the Bermuda Triangle or what it is, but Mm -hmm. (laughs) it seems like it's it's kind of a neat place to be. And everybody there, it's it's got its own culture, its own local culture, and even its own words, which I can relate to being an Appalachian American myself. We make up words too. So it's kind of neat. I was down there to help a friend and ended up down there being a part of a benefit concert for this guy named Mark Hanna, who worked at uh, the, the Hogsbreath Saloon, one of the more famous saloons down there. And he had lost a leg mm. in a motorcycle accident. And I was just immediately compelled to help him because, you know, my dad was a hit songwriter, but 
On top of that, he was a medical miracle because he was burned 70% of his body or no, 60% of his body in the 1970s. And just all the time, something he had fingers cut off. He had, you know, knee surgery, replacement tumors on his adrenal glands, everything crazy you can think of. And then myself, I also had, I had cancer. So I'm kind of made a joke about it when I played at his benefit, he was watching us on online while we were doing it there live or just viewing it, you know, it was was for him. And he, it wasn't, I don't think it was broadcast. He was, someone was just holding up a phone uh, for him to watch us for uh, his healing really. And I made a joke that it's not really a joke, but it is. If you've been through a lot of medical trauma, you know, you have to keep your sense of humor about you. And Mm. I just, well, I know what it's like to lose part of yourself physically lose part of yourself. So that was the reason I was there, but it was kind of cool because as things happen, I was down there during the Key West songwriters festival, which was a little scaled back this year, I think for a a lot of reasons. And it was neat to uh, be featured on the radio as a songwriter during that important time when all the eyes in the community are on songwriting. And uh, it was super neat. I got to honor my daddy and uh, Mr. Dean Dillon, who was a good friend of my dad, also a Tennessee songwriter. Have you interviewed Dean? I did twice. Yeah, he's a character. Oh, he's yeah. such a character. And then, of course, I was honored by Hobie there in Carolyn on their show on Well 99.5 down there in the Lower Keys. They had the world debut of my new cover song. And what was cool is Hobie told me off the air, but He's actually acquainted with Bruce Springsteen, the writer of I'm on Fire. Wow. Because they're New Jersey boys. They all, you know, a lot of the music scenes, really the music world is small. You know that. But he had played with him, you know, filled in for him or something on a gig or two back when they were kids. So I just thought, well, like of the synchronicity, you want to talk about a cool synchronicity, a cool coincidence, that is just a series of them. So it's pretty cool. Well, what was it about that song, I'm on Fire, that made you think, I want to put the Amanda Colleen Williams touch on it? You know, uh, it was kind of weird. I loved that song when it came out in the 80s. I was a kid, and I remember the first time I heard that song, I was at my grandma's house, and it was a rainy day, and my grandma had this room that it was just an empty blank room, and it had one of those old-school hand braided rugs in the floor and my cousins and I were sort of trapped inside because normally we'd play outside and here's this song I'm on fire and it came on it sounded like a train which it made me think of a train and here I am in this you know childlike trance in the floor listening to Bruce Springsteen coming out of the radio and my cousin made some comment like I think it was the line where he's talking about freight train running through the middle of my head or something like that she was like, oh, gross. And immediately I was like, okay, no, that's not gross to me. That is compelling to me. Isn't that funny how one person will be turned off by something totally, and then that's the very thing that somebody <laughs> is drawn to by the song? So that made me like it even more. And then it just kind of came back around. I've been challenged with my music all these years, you know? For multiple reasons, we can talk about that if you want. But completing and putting out an album is a—it's a hard task for any artist, especially when you're an independent, a true independent. 
because you don't have that immediate feedback from a team that you would do if you're an artist on a label. And that can be good and bad. You know, your team might tell you, oh, it's terrible. We want you to do something else. And then you're like, no. But then on the other side, your team can steer you correctly, which is more often the case, I think. And so as an independent, you're always looking for your momentum. You look for your momentum as a, as a major artist too, but it's so important as an independent because if you have momentum of activity and success, you can overcome some of the challenges of having to, first of all, be your one-woman army, do everything yourself, but also keeping up enough interest in the public eye to sustain a release project rather than as my business partner says, you light a little fire and it goes out and then you got to light another fire. And, and the tendency is you pour the gasoline on there and it, mm. then it goes out really fast too, you know, and that's the analogy of, well, you, you do this activity and then you advertise it, you know, that's the woof of the, the gasoline. But for me with the Appalachia kid album and I had completed the album, wrote the whole thing with, with my co-writer and, you know, multiple co-writers really on that album and something was missing and it was just missing. And I was bound by, you know, artistic reasons just to want to have a complete album that felt right to me. But also on the other side of things, the very real economic constraints of wanting to make a piece of art in a completed way for the most, for the ability to have the most return on my investment. Mm. So in other words, I wanted to record it for as least as I could with still the quality, you know, musicianship and studio ship and, and engineering and paying your people what they need to be paid, but also making it so that I knew whatever I put into that, I had a chance of getting it back out at the end of the day. So with I'm on fire, it was so compelling to me as a, I say it's a keystone song for that Appalachia kid album, even though I didn't write it. Because it sets the context for everything else on that album. Because mm. it it's a different sound. Like, you know, as a marketer, like the last thing you want is to educate the marketplace. In other words, you don't want to be so different that people can't get it. They don't understand it. It's just like something foreign. Right. Which that's kind of the case with, with hillbilly music because it's such a, a niche genre. It was... You know, it's a little bit controversial because even my friends that are from other countries, they think the word hillbilly is an insult. And I guess it can be. Some people do use it as an insult, but not those of us that feel compelled and know what, you know, that history means. And it's a proud thing. So the Appalachian music, the hillbilly music, and then finding this song that was already a hit in the 80s. But then when it came, you know, into my head and then out of my fingers, it sounds different even though I'm trying to play it just like Bruce, you know, it doesn't sound anything like him. Hmm. Because, uh, I guess that's the, the artist's distortion of reality, you know, that makes, well, you look at Van Gogh, he saw, you know, you look at Van Gogh and his stuff is so distinctive, but he saw halos around lights, they say, because he was licking his lead paint. So hmm. even things, you know, like if, if, if you see things differently, you're trying to express it the same way. Maybe he was, he really saw things that way. And that's how I feel about the, the Bruce Springsteen song. That is how that song sounds to me when he does it. And so when I do it, it's funny because it sounds 
like the, the Appalachia thing, which is why I feel it's the Keystone song because it it combines the rock stuff and the Appalachia stuff with the high mountain singing. And then over here is this New Jersey songwriter who's just a, a genius. And he had that high lilting kind of crying in his song that makes the crying that I do in Appalachia Kid relevant. It makes it, it sets it into a place. Mm. So I just love that song. And I've just said, you know what? I'm going to go in and record that song. And it's going to go on this album because that's what has to complete the album. It just needed that. So I'm so excited about it because it's an honoring of, it's almost an honoring of the past and a connector to the present, but it's also a connector of all of that Appalachia mountain chain because, you know, it does stretch all the way up there to New Jersey. And uh, much of that mountainous part of New Jersey does look like Tennessee. So Mm. I know that probably, I think they said Bruce lives in the beachy, the more the beach part of the state or whatever, but still, you know, that connector is there and that, that connector of American, American singer songwriter. You're just a special song anyway. Hmm. Would you say, do you write something every day? Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Something. Yeah. Is the art of songwriting, is it something that is only possessed by a few? Oh, no, 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 no. Songwriting is waiting for you. It's waiting for all of us to take pen in hand and put it to paper and to just express the world as you see it. And it takes it takes sometimes, uh, I think the most most of the time when people say they start writing songs, there's something that happens to them. It's something unusual because songwriting is a bit unusual when you meet someone who does practice songwriting, especially a daily songwriter. Very uncommon, even among pro circles now. But we all have the ability to take a pen, put it to paper, and then the pen becomes almost like an antenna to your higher self, you know, to your God, you know, to God. You think about whatever your idea about that is. I'm not here to discuss or like debate theology with anybody, but, you know, whatever it is that you feel is the highest and best representation of anything that you could possibly connect with. That's what I'm talking about with this pen. Hmm. And it's a tool, you know, when I go in and I, I write songs with kindergartners, you know, I write songs with, with through, through my in schools program, my song life program, all the way up to like judges that are, you know, copyright judges. And, you know, the kids, they don't have any, uh, sometimes they don't even physically write with the pen. They just express whatever it is. And oftentimes it's the most poetic, beautiful thing, you know, from the mouths of babes, hmm. but making yourself that uh, vulnerable, Honestly, your pen and your paper are your best friends. And especially if you're going through something that's causing you to feel like, gosh, I wish I had somebody to talk to. Or maybe you try to talk to somebody and they don't get it. And that Mm. is worse than not trying to talk to somebody because you're shut down. You've shut the door on trying to connect. And that is a dangerous and lonely spot because we really, we literally are all connected. We are all connected and feeling like you're not is a terrible thing 
And so this pin is a connector. And honestly, you're going through something and you don't have anybody or, or let's say you don't want to burden that person that you do have. Mm. You write that in your book and your book, your notebook becomes your friend. And it's not a sad or pathetic thing because your friend that is your notebook as at the same time as you're writing a song, you're actually creating property in the form of intellectual property. Even if your song's not any good, it's still property. Like how many other things can you do in the course of a day that creates property? You know, mm. like amazing. It is amazing. And I've also been around, you know, it's hard to be a kid nowadays. It, I can't even imagine what it's like to be a kid today. But I do know that there's a lot of pain among the kids and the young people today. And having worked with some of those kids in various groups around the country, some of the folks that caretake for the, some of these, they call them at-risk youth. I mean, I think probably a lot of youth are at risk. Depends on what you're at risk for, right? But these kids that have really been through it, some of these caretakers say that the kids have replaced self-harming behavior with writing. They were like, you know, harming their arms and cutting themselves and things. And they have now replaced that harmful behavior with writing. Hmm. Because now they have that tool. Now they have that tool. Hey, I can take control of this pen and it's a healthy thing and I can use the pen to express myself, even if there's nobody around or even if there is. <laughs> mm-hmm. so it's cool. It's just, yeah, songwriting's for everyone. My dad, he, he was so adamant. He's like, this is a quote of my dad. Everybody, everybody can be a songwriter. You just have to do it. Just try. Very interesting. You know, you have this, uh, this shiny guitar there in your hand. And I'm, yeah. I'm Really glad to see the guitar there. Sometimes I have to I have to ask, and it puts me. I, I hate asking people for things, but um, maybe there's something you could play for all the folks out there. Yeah. Okay. Even if it's a work in progress, it could be anything. Well, I kind of teed it up for this one, so I'll play you this one. All righty. This is one I wrote with D. Scott Miller, and I know he's fine with me playing it. I recorded it, in fact, so it's. But I will play it for you and honor him uh, and mention his name. And this song is called Where You're Coming From. Well, I can't 
some news for you I've been miles and miles and miles to get where you're coming from If you're crazy enough to be with me Gonna find out eventually. There's some places that I won't go, and there's scars that I don't want to show. Part of my story of love, uh, one woman show that song. <laughs> well, I could tell you, your singing and your playing is just beautiful. Aw, as Thank always, you. yes. Oh, that practicing. <laughs> oh, gotcha. <laughs> Sometimes when I when I have someone perform a song, and you know, of course, a lot of times when when it's being recorded, I'm the I'm. You know this particular version of that song. I'm the first person to hear this version of that. You know what I mean? Yeah. A lot of times, for some reason, I start to either blush or I'm kind of like I, I don't know. Like uh, the last time you were on, which people can go back and listen, it was audio only. That was number nine. I was crying. You were playing, and I was crying. You know, which I muted the the microphone, but. <laughs> You know, people need to cry. Yeah, so true. Yeah. 
You ever heard there's a thing called the veil of tears? Mm. I think that, you know, it's like something we go through. You know, there's a period in your life. You see people go through it. It's just easy. You wear that heart on the sleeve, but it's not always a bad cry. It's a, a beauty. Oh, yeah. Beauty and you cry and, hey, it's good. Yeah. Don't hold it back to whoever, to wherever. Don't hold it back. <laughs> but if you have to hold it back, you know there is a trick. What's that? This over the years being on stage because I just hate crying in front of people. I just don't, I don't enjoy that at all. But you look up. It's either up to the right or up and to the left. But you can give it a try and see if it works. <laughs> I got you. And that's and what the- makes it worse. You're sitting up there on stage going. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you've written some songs with, with really talented people. Recently, a song you wrote with Benita Hill got recorded by Garth Brooks, but you've written with Jeffrey Steele. Is there someone you've always wanted to write with that you haven't yet? Oh, yeah, a lot of people. I mean, lately, I think John Randall. Hmm? Great. I mean, obviously, I haven't written really with that many of my favorite writers in town. I've written with a handful. I've been lucky to write with some greats. Um but you don't always know. Like it could be a, a writer I've never heard of that is going to be my favorite new co-writer. You know, I think a lot of times for new writers, ha- this happens. But even for those of us that have been doing it a while, you think, you know, you're going to write with oh, 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 I know Alan Shamblin. Oh my gosh, Alan Shamblin. I'd love to write with Alan Shamblin. Mm-hmm. Tom Douglas. Okay, there's another one. But you think, okay, I'll get to write with Alan Shamblin one day, and we're going to write this big hit song, and it's going to get cut. And I don't even think that anymore, which is probably bad because I think, wow, what kind of great song are we going to write? You know, and oftentimes, I mean, I hate to say this, but at the expense of a great song as a writer, you got to write a commercial song. You know, if you're sitting in a room with a commercial writer that's signed to a publisher, you better crank out a commercial song or you may never get to write the great song with that person. It's kind of a crazy world, but sometimes I love to write with new writers that have something unique, maybe some unique personal experience, life experience to share in the course of writing because I got the craft. I'm not saying that I, I'm not ever, you know, I'm, I'm always going to get better at the craft. I'm going to practice and practice, but I have the craft such that I can sit down and write a song anytime, anywhere, no matter what. I can sit down and write a song two hours, no matter what. If I have at least cooperation from my co-writer, we can finish the song, period. Now, is it a great song? Maybe not in that time. We can go back and revise, but it's a completed work. With a new writer, you've got the ability to say whatever you want, whatever needs saying, tell that story, and have a lot of fun doing it, not worrying about anything else, which to me is really the the magic of writing. love obviously i love writing a commercial hit song and if you can do both at once i mean that's really the dream but oftentimes it's a it's a give or take with that so i would love i love writing with great writers i love to chase down that hook i love to toss around lines but i also love to finish a song and so to me that's it can come in a variety of ways co-writers hmm well tell us about benita hill for those uh, out there who don't know her who is this woman 
Well, Benita is a beautiful woman. She um, came to town writing songs, singing, and she toured as a singer with the Almond Brothers and with with several other big acts. And then as a songwriter, she was in the same uh, publishing family as Alan, Alan Reynolds, um, who was Garth's producer. And so Benita, she's a very piano-motivated writer, so she writes a lot of piano jazz, really, is, is kind of her strong suit. She has a lot of singer-songwriter jazz, but also rock-influenced, of course, country. She's got cuts not just on Garth Brooks as being part of his kind of family of writers. Over the years, she's had big hits with him, including a really big hit, Two Pina Coladas, which is funny. I, I've heard her over the years sing her version, the original it's actually, as I'm hearing from Garth on one of his Garthology things on his show, it's not really even the original version, but she sings a version of that when she does her live shows. And over the years, I've done a lot of rounds with her and Becky Hobbs. We've done a lot of the live hospice benefits together over the years, and I've gotten to know Benita. But she's just a beautiful, striking woman. Her hair is as white as, as snow. And you see her from across the room. It's just a beautiful, radiant light. Yeah, she's a she's an incredible person. She does a lot of mentoring with songwriters. And we've had her here uh, with my songpreneurs group at a couple of retreats in the past. And everyone loves her. She's just such a, a beautiful light, especially the, as a woman writer, to help lead and guide that next generation. And she's just a, a unique artist in her own right. If you haven't heard her original music that she's put out. You should go check out her website, Benita Hill. I think it's just BenitaHill.com, but you can uh, do the internet search to find her. But she's had um, Crystal Gale hits, several Garth hits, and then tons of songs that are on her projects. My personal favorite, I think, is one called Frost Me. Mm. It's, It's a lovely dessert themed song. Well, I don't know if this might only be cool to me, but this is something that uh, I just love it when these kind of things happen. As you know, I'm obsessed with songwriters, and I'm obsessed with songs. Um, But I interviewed Benita Hill a few years back, and then the next day after I recorded the interview, I went to Charleston, or somewhere off the coast of Carolina. Yeah. And I was walking late at night. It was like 1 o'clock in the morning or something. And there was this guy, he was all by himself, and he was playing on a, like a marimba, and he was playing two pina coladas, <laughs> it, it instrumental, and I was just like, no way. And that those kind of things, I don't know why, but they mean so much to me. Well, yeah, I mean, that's a <laughs> meaningful coincidence. My dad, you know, he'd always talk about synchronicity, you know. Right. It is a meaningful coincidence, and it just, it it's a... Uh, I wrote a song with one of my writers, Brenda. We wrote a song called God Winks because she calls them God Winks when those things happen. And I think that's right. It's a silly little song. I'll have to play that for you sometime. Okay. (laughs) I don't know the words. I'll do it sometime for you, though. Okay. That sounds good. (laughs) Well, something that I think is interesting also is when you follow this path, of the arts, you just never know where you're going to end up. You just don't. And that means from a, 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 you could interpret where any number of ways, 
but also just places. Some place that you've been to that I think is really interesting is your work has brought you to the country of Romania. Tell us about that experience and what you observed there. Oh, wow. Yeah, Romania. Well, I was tapped by the United States Department of State, two of their offices there, which I'll I'll just back it up and tell you a little bit about how that happened. It's like, I'm so a talkative person, right? I like to meet people. I like to talk to strangers. Like my grandma was El Zeta and she would talk to everybody. You'd leave her alone in the doctor's office for five minutes and you'd come back and she'd know everybody's name and something about them <laughs> from and a story to tell. And they were laughing. So I kind of got that from her. I think, and I just love people. And I was up at the United States Patent and Trademark Office presenting at their copyright seminar. I met this lady there at the uh, the through the Commerce Department here in Nashville. I was introduced to a lady at the USPTO, and they're very active with not just patents and trademarks, but with copyright, all intellectual property. Which, as we already talked about, that's songs. Songs are intellectual property. So um, when you write a song, you're creating that, and and that's kind of cool. So. I was up there and my presentation was was fun because they always put me on the panel with lawyers and litigators and judges and things like that, I guess, for the difference in our way of looking at the intellectual property. So and plus, it's it's probably fun. You know, you get a little bit more variety with different accents and things up there. But after my presentation, uh, this gentleman from the State Department, the Office of Intellectual Property Enforcement, came up to me. And he and I hit it off and, you know, being the small town gal that I am, I said, oh, yeah, I know this other guy that works in the State Department. Maybe you know him. And he's like, probably don't because, you know, it's a really big place. And (laughs) I didn't know how big it was. It's huge. So he didn't know the other guy. The other guy was in the office of the Bureau of, of Educational and Cultural Affairs, which is their Really, the, they're all different offices over there, too. But the Cultural Affairs Office often deals with arts, you know, artists. And they, they're the particular office that has the Arts Envoy program, which I was a little bit familiar with. You know, maybe in college looked at some, you know, like Peace Corps and things like that. But never dreamed that I would be talking to people from this organization. So I put these two guys together. It was Jay. Raymond over at the the Office of uh, Cultural Affairs and then Joseph Giblin at the Office of Office of uh, Intellectual Property Enforcement. And they got together and started talking. And uh, about a year later, they circled back and asked me if I wanted to help put together this program combining arts envoy work with the work of education about intellectual property enforcement. And I'm like, yeah, sure. I'd love to to help do that. So they made me the pilot of this program and sent me on the first inaugural trip, which they put out the, you know, the wire to all the embassies around the world and Romania uh, picked it up. They said, Hey, yeah, we'd love to have this program come over here. And it was a good time for them because Romania was the head of the EU at that particular time. They, I guess they traded out the duties that are associated with certain parts of the EU collective. And so that was headquartered in Romania. So they sent me over there, not just to help 
educate people about the intellectual property, but specifically to help the Romanian uh, law school students to learn more about what it's like to create intellectual property and specifically through my proprietary curriculum of the song life program that I take into the schools. It's a version of that that I do with Arts Envoy in this IPR uh, program. So I got to go over there. And of course, on the inaugural trip, you know, I'd never done it before. Nobody had. So I didn't really know how to prepare. So I just went whole hog and I read all these books on Romania. And I read all of these, the folk tales of Romania and listened to Romanian music. And then I got this app on my phone and started practicing speaking Romanian language for, I guess, about a month before I went over there. So it was a real immersive experience when I finally got over there to meet real Romanians, you know, as I thought they were just so delightful, especially Isabella and Robert and and Denisa, who I got to travel with. And we went to first to Bucharest, the main city there, the capital, I guess it is. And Romania, like Tennessee, has three distinct parts. So they were united three different parts. And same with Tennessee here, my home state. We have East, Middle, and West Tennessee. That's the reason we've got the three stars on our flag. So I was immediately like, these, you know, we have this in common. So we just had a blast. And it was so nice learning about the culture, not just from the books, but then being able to go and and connect with them. And it's funny, it says in the official press release that I was over there for three weeks and did all this work, but actually I was only there for one week. We did a lot of work that one week, and I got to visit three different law schools in Romania, one in Bucharest, one in Sibiu, which is a historic town, and then the cobblestone streets like you were talking about in, in Charleston. And then the other town was Cluj, Napoca, which is sort of like an Aspen type of feel, like mm-hmm. a high-end, like almost like a ski resort type of vibe. Very different, distinct cultures within that one country, which is, you know, I felt like, well, this is a lot like Tennessee. Um, our culture is is similar, you know, so you just, it was nice for me to see being all the way on the other side of the world in a place that most people think about, you know, Dracula, which isn't even, like Baram Stoker never even visited Romania. They said. That's right. <laughs> I found uh, funny. So anyway, it's just neat. You know, well, hillbillies are that way. Same thing we were talking about earlier. People think they know or what hillbillies are this or that, but maybe they're not. You know, who do you know that is a hillbilly or that, uh, you know, who do you know specifically from these groups you think you know things about? It's the same thing with, with Romania. You know, I felt so honored to be able to get to know the people that I met there. And then interesting too, because just, you know, within my lifetime, the people there have experienced a whole shift from communism to democracy. Mm. It's like, whoa, we haven't had a shift in the United States of that kind ever, I guess, because we came over here, you know, seeking freedom and democracy in the first place. So it's kind of uh, interesting to get to travel and to get to meet other art- artists in other countries, especially Romania. Like, wow. Definitely, if you've never been, and you've been, though, haven't you? I have, yes. Well, how was your experience? Well, Romania is, I think, a a country, like you were saying, 
frequently people have a misconception about it. They would maybe think, like you said, the legend of Dracula, and that's just such a small – and everything from a city, in some ways, Bucharest kind of reminds me of Paris, but also Romania has mountains. There's intellectual people. And I also I – always, I always have to mention this, some of the, the musical exports from Romania, the great Gheorghe Zamfir – which if you've seen the movie Karate Kid, you have heard his beautiful pan flute. And also, a lot of people don't know this, but Art Garfunkel, one of the greatest singers in American music, his ancestry is from Romania. Really? Yeah, how about that, huh? <laughs> yeah, and you were telling me too about, speaking of great songwriters, so today is Bob Dylan's birthday? That's right. Today, Bob Dylan and and Mr. Dylan doesn't come. His ancestors aren't from Romania specifically, but they are from that part of the world. His ancestors, yeah. the Zimmermans, <laughs> which wow. there's Bob there on this little painting I have. But yes, today is Bob Dylan's birthday. We're filming this on May 24th. Wow, that's so cool. And we talked before this, you had mentioned that to me. And I thought, you know, we were talking about synchronicity again. When my dad passed away, 2016, he was a hit songwriter, Kim K.I.M. Williams, in the National Songwriters Hall of Fame. And he was a lifelong learner. Like He never stopped studying the craft of songwriting. And when he passed away, I got to look through his book. He would always carry his, his lyrics with him on stage because he wouldn't memorize them or he wouldn't trust his memory to recall his lyrics at the appropriate time. So he would always read them and he'd have his chords, but then he'd put songs that he was studying too in the, in the side pockets. And I looked through what he was studying and the song that Garth covered of Dylan's, he was studying that song to bring you my love. And I think that's the title. Isn't that right? To make you feel my love. Yeah. Dad was studying that. So Happy birthday, Mr. Dylan. <laughs> pretty, pretty awesome legacy of songwriting. Absolutely. And, you know, we were also talking the last time we spoke about he was in the news recently because he got recently a, a really sizable, it's his own business, but he got a sizable check for his work through the years. Yeah. And when you saw that, it was for something, some people have said 300 million, some people have said 400 million. What went through your head when you saw that? Well, lately there have been a lot of those high profile catalog sales outright. And, you know, you obviously, you, you want to congratulate someone for doing that kind of monumental business transaction. I mean, come on, multi-million dollars on your work. But I also, you know, being an educator about intellectual property and a songwriter, it's oftentimes anytime the general public is seeing the songwriter in the news, it's often related to some million dollars, something, you know, it's like multi-million dollar lawsuit over here, or million, you know, $300 million catalog sale. And those are great, but, you know, that's like comparing every kid and adult and little leaguer and everybody that plays baseball to those, you know, 0.1% of people that ever end up playing in the major leagues or get into the Hall of Fame, let's say. And so you're looking at 
oh, well, all songwriters must be loaded rich and they must, you know, not worry about whether I'm paying for their download or not because they don't need my money because they've got so much. Well, no, that's not necessarily the case because as Mr. Dillon has shown, that's a whole lifetime of work. He started, I think you told me what year he put out his first album. I mean, full of cover songs, you said. Right. And he's built his success all those years. And so, you know, those examples of people who have sold those catalogs, that represents you know, the, the end of a certain type of legacy for them and the beginning of a new venture. Whereas most songwriters never get anywhere close to that kind of legacy, certainly not monetarily right now. But the thing I think we concluded in a positive note was that anytime you see someone spending that kind of money on a copyright or a collection of copyrights, then you can only hope that they'll take the measures to protect those Mm. to ensure that those rights sustain, not just through the rest of, you know, the copyright span of, well, it's the life of the author plus 70 years. So when you're writing a song today, even if you don't care about the money, even if you're, I mean, you shouldn't, you, you can't worry about that. If you worry about that, then you're not in the right business. Let's just face it. You, you think about it, account, you encounter those thoughts, but you can't just make that your motivator or you'll drive yourself crazy. You have to do it for the love of it. You have to do it for the art, but you also have to know from a, you know, from a family man or a family woman point of view that regardless of whether or not music is earning its fair due right now in terms of royalty or streaming rates or whatever you want to argue about, the intrinsic value of music is, you know, Warren Buffett talks about intrinsic value when you're investing. And the intrinsic value of music is, it can be proven. You can teach a child its ABCs through a song. You can help people to remember the Declaration of Independence or the preamble of the Constitution through a song. Most of us still can. We learn how to spell the word radio, radio, through a song. And it's a memorable thing. And the reason that we remember songs is we're geared toward music. Music is the life's blood of, of, of life. I mean, vibration, we all vibrate. Everything is a vibration and you really get down to it. That is the place where science and art, you know, like in the Constitution even come together. The protection of science and the useful arts is all bound up in music and its ability to connect people, not just people who are the same, people who are so dissimilar that they maybe don't have anything else in common except that they breathe the same air and drink the same water. They're still bathed in these vibrations of music. And luckily, most of the music, especially Mr. Dillon's music, is about love. You know, most music is. Mm. What compels it forward in us. That's probably why it connects us so well. And even when you're speaking about, uh, you know, Mr. Dillon especially, would talk about what he saw as maybe being wrong with the world. That is a special kind of love to have the boldness and the vision to, to, to comment on something that you see as having room for improvement, you know, and being able to put forward a vibration in a creative way to where I think that I just recently did another 
event down in Peru and read some of their folk tales. And one of the Peruvian sayings that I picked up was, a river that runs underground cannot be diverted. And Mr. Dillon knows all about that river. And so do a lot of songwriters. And so, you know, it's, it's intrinsically important that we continue as songwriters and in the tradition of Mr. Dillon at that, because um, people need it. We all do. Hmm. Well, on that note, I think uh, you, you've been holding that guitar there, and there are certain things we can only communicate musically. Maybe there is something that the moment calls for. Is there something on your mind that you would like to play? Yeah, I'll play you. This is uh, I'll play you Appalachian Kid. Okay. So this is kind of, uh, like I said on my website, this is the closest I've come to really telling my true life story in music. You get little hints of it here and there, but in terms of just going for it, I think this song really captures it. And I wrote this with a co-writer also. His name is Pete Garfinkel, and uh, he's one of my writers on the Hillbilly Culture family of, of, of publishing houses. His specific one is Hillbilly Gold. So I'll play this song and uh, dedicate it to all the Appalachian kids. <laughs> all right. Pajamas, there's comfort in the closeness of the closet in the forest where I grew up in the country in a town you never heard of before. You don't accidentally end up off the grid, never did meet a stranger, know the danger. That you grew up like we did We did Little Appalachian kid Oh
end of the danger Unless you grew up like we did And we did Little apple at your kid All right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, a lot of times people they they don't they only see one side of something. So they would maybe look at all these credentials that you have and I was saying at the beginning how many copies of your songs have sold. Uh, and then as we did the interview, the things that you get to do that people see that are are very cool, like you get to go down to the keys. You get to have major artists record your stuff. You get to perform for people. But there's the other side of it, and I'm hoping you can tell us, what have you given up to have what you have? Well, they see me go with the keys, but they don't see us driving 16 hours without stopping <laughs> in the car, like pulling over and maybe sleeping too, getting down there and not sleeping, my partner not sleeping for 36 hours. It's oftentimes, it's not fair what you put on. The, if you do have lucky enough to have somebody with you in the trenches, it's it's really them that pays more than you because you at least, like you said, you get the glories. Mm. You might have to claw and fight your way and stand there and be ignored by people who have promised you whatever it is you're there for. And you just say up a prayer and say, Lord, I'm leaving this one to you. Next thing you know, you're invited up with the, you know, to uh, fulfill what it is you've come there for, you know. But what have I given up? You know, I, I don't really think of it that way. Hmm. Um, but I know what I refused to give up along the way. And at one point, you know, a lot of people talk about that family balance with your career. When I was 23 years old, I thought I was going to make it. You know, I was new. It was my lucky number. I'm going to make it. I'm 23. I had twins as an unmarried mother, 23, and um, I refused an opportunity to sign, or I don't know that they would assign me, but they were kind of offering it to me. It's an artist on Sony. I signed a publishing deal, which was nice. It was great. And the kids were too, thanks to Donna Healy being a great mentor to me and a, and a great friend to my dad who brought me in there and introduced me to her and, and had audition with her. And she brought in some of the folks from L.A., and I sat there and played my music for them and kind of laid the path for me, she said. Artist side, writer side. And I was watching Faith Hill come out really right then with her kids, you know, and, and there she was fighting to take them with her on tour, and she was a superstar. And I knew I wasn't no superstar, not yet, and that I may not ever be, and I definitely wouldn't be for a while. And here's my twins, me with their mama, no daddy. Well, I mean, they have a daddy, but he wasn't my husband, never. And um, I didn't leave them. I said, well, I'm not leaving my babies. Hmm. And um, I'll never regret that. But what did I give up? I don't know. I definitely didn't give that up. I didn't give up their childhood. I did have a period of time where I was leaving them with my parents three days a week and coming to Nashville four days a week and then vice versa. That's a 500-round trip 
you know, 500 miles round trip every week. That's so I was doing that. I was sleeping on the couch at my parents' house because I didn't ever have a bedroom there. That, that was rough. But my kids, you know, they didn't get to see their mama that much that year. And that wasn't going to work for me either. So I, we came back here. I quit working on Music Row uh, as a songwriter because the money wasn't there anymore. And uh, I homeschooled my kids in the woods. And, hmm. you know, I gave up, I guess, the Music Row dream to chase my own dream, which didn't involve a lot of the things that the Music Row dream does. <laughs> hmm better or worse you know and there's some great things about the music road dream but for me i've given up security in many ways people see you know oh you've got you've got all this you must have a lot of money you must have a lot of resources oh you've sold 17 million units well yeah for over you know 20 something years and when you look at on the good end of the day a one unit for a songwriter if they own 100% of the song and the publishing, that's 9.1 cents. And I'll just tell you right now, on none of those 17 million units was I the sole writer and owner of that 9.1 in every case. Hmm. Most of the cases, that's divided by 10 because of my, one of my most successful songs to date was Beer Run, and it was a five-song co-write, and all of us had publishers. So that's divided by 10. Hmm which is great still, but you know, when you hear big numbers again, it's, it's not always like it seems. And I think to answer that question that you asked, it's a good question. You always ask good questions. There's this gal in town. I'd always seen her kind of up from afar, beautiful girl from Mexico heritage, Texas and Mexico. Her name is Christiana Perez. I wrote several songs with her over the years. She was signed to Curb Records. And I might have been a little jealous of her, really, because she was getting a lot of attention from a lot of the people, the same people I knew that I thought, well, you know, what does she got that I don't have? So I'll go watch her on her showcase. And I thought she did really well. But again, I thought, well, you know, she's got this very distinctive, unique style. And you may have never heard of her because like many of us, she had that deal, but then nothing followed through with her to have her success that she deserved. But one day I was at a, I became friends with her after years and realized that my jealousy of her was completely ridiculous because you want to talk about somebody who's sacrificed that gal has, you know, in many ways. And I was standing next to somebody else at a, a different show and this gal came up and she was watching Christiana just belting on stage. Just amazing. And the girl said, I'd give anything to sing like that. And I thought, I didn't even think it. I said it. I said, you better be careful. <laughs> you wish for. And that's the truth. Because you've got somebody that can move you with their artistry. And you better believe it that they have paid some heavy price and you don't want to have to hmm. They've done it for you. And uh, I think that pretty much goes for everybody that can move people. You know, are we all, we're, we're neurotic. We're, you know, as, some, as my partner says, egotistical and self-serving many times, but there's a compelling part of when God puts on your heart to create artistry. 
And are you going to take it and just take it for granted? Or are you just going to do it as a thing for the fame or the money or whatever you think? Or are you going to really do it? Because if you're really going to be successful, it's work. There's parts of it that are not fun. In fact, the most important parts are usually not really fun. And anything you're going to do for a career, there's going to be parts of it that are not fun. And they're sure. I mean, even if it's your own business. Like I've had times when, well, I don't get internet at my house because they won't run internet there. So I've got a, a, a venue Uh, 7695.us if you want to go look at it is our website but we got this place originally because of not being able to get internet from the house Mm -hmm. so you know you want to talk about the driving you know and having to do your work that way so you know you, you want to look at all the sum total of what somebody has to put out to make their artistry happen and there's always going to be sacrifices there you know it's never just, oh, this is a wonderful life and woohoo, everything's great. Oh, if it was, I think uh, somebody sent me a quote today. It was uh, somebody picked it up on the FB, you know, it said, uh, if you find a path without any obstacles in it, then it probably doesn't lead anywhere. <laughs> Interesting quote and probably almost always true. <laughs> well, for anybody out there who, would like to pick up this music. Tell us how can somebody how can they how can they have it so that they can they can listen to it whatever they want, internet or not. Well, my original music is on my website, which is obviously online. It's AmandaColeenWilliams.com. You can buy physical CDs and you can order them there. And then for the online stuff, pretty much all the streaming services now have my music more so probably Amazon music than the others, but you can still find it on the other, all the other ones. And then the new album is currently available for pre-order. So folks that come and pre-order that one directly from me on my website, get a special experience of the album where they can go in now and listen to the tracks that have already been released. But then as I release more, they become available there first. And they're also able to, kind of put in their two cents and interact with me a little bit more and even help me to pick which songs they like the best out of the ones they've been able to hear and things like that. So that's for the Appalachia Kid. And you can actually just go to AppalachiaKid.com and find the new music. Okay, AppalachiaKid.com. Well, Amanda, maybe to send everyone on their way as we close here, do you have maybe a, a, a song would be a fitting farewell and hopefully it won't be as long until the next time we speak. Yeah. You know what? I think uh, this would be a fitting song to end with because if I'm not mistaken, our mutual friend, John Goodman, John Goodwin introduced us. Is that right? That's very correct. And (laughs) with him. Oh, wow. And it's not released anywhere. I've never actually recorded it. I'm looking for a pick. It's why I'm scooting around on my stuff here. So yeah. this is an exclusive. Yeah, it is. It's an exclusive for here. And especially until I record it and put it out, you're going to be the only place to hear this one. So John will be tickled about that. I can't find a pick. So let's see. What can I use? I'm going to fly over here and get my pick. No worries. 
I'll just tell everybody out there that's watching this, if they want to find out more about Mr. Goodwin, W-I-N, Goodwin, not Goodman, go to babyrecords.com. He's a very brilliant songwriter. And I mentioned this on episode nine. He uh, he said to me, you know, do you know who Amanda Williams is? You really, really would like meeting her and you would like her music. The first time I, I did an interview with her was face-to-face at Smith's Old Bar in Atlanta, Georgia. And we recorded this little interview that went out on the radio. We were sitting on the street. I remember she told me that she liked mashed potatoes in that interview. But here <laughs> she's back. Gosh, that's so long ago. Is Smith's even there still? I don't I think be- it. I believe they're still there. I don't well, know if they're open right now, but. Well, I still can't find a pick, but that's okay. I'm just going to do it anyway. All right, John. This one's for you, Baby Records. This one is called Can You See It? Okay. Crazy, but 
It's everything, ain't it? I spend all of my life designing, unwinding, realigning, and finally refining it. Oh, can you dig it? It's everything, ain't it? It's my palace, my cradle, cradle the grave. All of my dreams, all of my dreams are inside of it. Can you see? John Goodwin. I love him. <laughs> you know, whenever I think about him, I always think of one thing. One time, I think we were at David Brainerd's studio, and he played me this song. And when he finished playing it, he looked at me and he smiled and he said, so dies the myth of perfection. <laughs> and I always, I, I've, I don't, that was more than 10 years ago. And I still always think of that. Like every now and then when I make a mistake or if, if something happens and I'll think, so dies the myth of perfection. <laughs> but his performance was, was really great. But he said that. And I, I always think of that. <laughs> well, what a character he is. No kidding. Well, Thank you so much for spending time with us. It's been a real pleasure. Always my pleasure to spend time with you. Voice sounds better too now. You had to just work it out, huh? What's that? Voice sounds better too. Right, right. Just I, <laughs> I, I had to give it a little practice and get the vocal cords warmed up, I guess. Yeah, that's right. All right. Well, until next time. Well, thanks so much, Paul. You're just a true light, and you, we're lucky to have you. To uh, you're like our muse and our and our our driving force, and and just a celebrator of what is true and good about people. And I just appreciate you so much. You're very kind. Thank you so much. And I hope we can talk again soon. Yes, we definitely will. Bum up but a beep boot dot boop the beep but a leap a knock the bees I walk on tea girl gets it no she got is in and got a kiss I call oh say I'm swagging I'm believing but don't take a walk again goodbye